If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will be looking at the last eight or nine verses of the chapter beginning in verse 50. And we celebrate at this time of year with special emphasis the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And some, someone sent me something this week that I thought was pretty humorous. The only uh, Christ created, he performed the greatest miracle of all time in rising from the dead on the Lord's day. Um, and ever since that time, children have been imitating that miracle that those who could not pick up anything for months now all of a sudden can pick up hundreds of eggs within minutes, right? Um, And I felt the truth of that in my soul. We are meditating on the work of Christ Jesus and all that he has accomplished, but it begins not on Easter. We back up It begins long before that. It begins with the fall into sin. It begins with our need. But then we find Christ coming into the world. And he, the righteous one, living a perfect life. And despite his perfection, he goes to the cross. We find throughout, if you read through the Gospels, you'll read phrases again and again where we are told he set his face like a flint, like a rock toward Christ. He was intentional, deliberate about going to Jerusalem, knowing what it would be. And he does not go merely to to sacrifice. That is, no one takes his life from him. He is the king of all things. He lays his life down. Even to the very last breath, he gives it up. It is not ripped from him. He is the Lord over all. But before he gives up the ghost, before he dies, he makes several declarations, none more profound than it is finished. Declaring what he had accomplished, the the satisfaction for sin. If you can picture that scene there, we now call Good Friday. It was anything but good that day. His darkness had descended. As the mockers and the revilers surrounded Christ. As the one who had created all things. The one who, even at that moment, we are told in Hebrews chapter 1, he upholds all things by the word of his power. The very ones that mocked him, he gave them breath to mock him. The very ones whose existence at that time served to end his He was the one who was allowing them to live. An old, old dead writer, Octavius Winslow, put it this way. Little did they dream as they bound the fatal wood upon his shoulder, by whose power that tree was made to grow, and from whom the beings who bore him to the death drew their existence. So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself. He created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. Oh, the depth of Jesus' love to sinners. We forget that too easily. Oh, the depth of the love of Jesus for sinners. That's that same love that is at this moment bent 
toward you. What good is love if the lover stays dead? What good is the death if he never lives again? Christ doesn't stay in the grave. Christ, against all patterns, he breaks the pattern. He rises, as he told his disciples again and again, he rises again on the third day. Takes up life. He who laid down his life, he takes it up again. The details of that resurrection story are, well, we read one of those accounts this morning. They're profound. And it shows the care for history, the details that we saw there. Not only the detail of John recording that he outrun Peter. That's a, that's a, a humorous detail, but John records that because he wants to be absolutely clear about everything that happened at this moment. It is the most important moment in all of history. Nothing else precedes that. And it is burned into his memory what has happened. And he doesn't want to overlook any detail. Everything, the historicity of it, matters to them. And so he talks about who got there first, who outran who. He talks about who was the woman. There were multiple women that went, but he singles out one in particular. And her role, the women, that each of the Gospels testifies to the significance of women. Those details matter. The empty tomb, the radical change in the disciples from cowardly to courageous, so many things we see that signal the truthfulness of the resurrection. But Paul's argument in this chapter is not merely that the resurrection happened. That is a big part of it. He is going to take a chunk. In fact, uh, Pastor Aaron earlier read a section where Paul makes it absolutely clear. We cannot spiritualize. We cannot even uh, look at the resurrection as if it was only a symbolic idea but not an actual event. If, you, if it is only an idea, if it is only a story we tell ourselves, then everything that we believe is a lie. And we are to be most pitied. The, the entire foundation of everything we believe as Christians rests upon whether Jesus truly rose from the dead. It matters. But the question goes further. He goes further. It doesn't merely matter for what we believe. It also matters for us in terms of our future. In Christ's dying and rising again, he secures, for all who trust in him, he secures a particular future. And friend, if if you are not a believer, not a Christian this morning, first I want to say thank you for joining with us. It is a privilege for us to have you. And I want, you to, I want you to grasp something this morning. That what Christ has done in his death and in his erection matters for you individually. And it will matter not just in this lifetime, but for all eternity. I remember when I was a child and I thought somebody who was in their 20s was, man, that's... That's old. Somebody who was in their 
40s, that's ancient. Now I realize if you're 40, you're young still. And I think, I hope I have that mindset when I'm 60 and 80 and whatever the Lord gives me. But you and I will not, whatever amount of years we're given, whether it is 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 or 100, eternity will make this life pale in comparison. What Jesus does matters for you for all eternity. And Paul is going to lead us into a meditation on that this morning. What does it mean for your future, for your life? And he talks about this need for a transformation. So before we dive into the text, would you join me as we pray and ask God's blessing as we come to his word? Father, this is indeed your word. We pray that you would work in our hearts that we may find it sweeter than a honeycomb, more precious than every jewel, that it will not come to us in vain. But as you promise that it will, it will produce the thing to which you send it. Father, open our eyes to see Uncover our hearts that we may glory in the truths that we find here and that we may receive them this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Paul describes in this text, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 50, Paul begins to describe this need that we have. He says, now this I say, brethren... And by brethren, he doesn't mean simply guys. That's the way down in Philadelphia, when they just want to talk to a group of people, what do they use? Guys, right? Guys. Hey, guys. It's a mixed group. They just say guys. Here, it is a shorthand for brothers and sisters, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ. He is looking at, the, at, the, at those who trust in Christ. We are a family. Now this I say, beloved brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption, or we might say that which is perishable, it can't inherit what is imperishable, incorruption. Paul gives us this, these pictures, flesh and blood. He's talking about our, our physical bodies. Your physical body is not able to inherit eternity. Your perishable body. Here he is referring not just to our our physical selves, but our physical selves that are in decay. And our bodies break down. They wear out. They have an expiration date. And he goes on in verse 53. He will talk about for this corruptible, that's this perishable body, must put on imperishability. And this mortal, this mortal body, must put on immortality. So not only is our Body, flesh, and blood, not only is it perishable, but it is mortal. It is fragile. It is weak. It will die. You and I are going to die. Unless Christ comes first, you and I are going to die. But Paul tells us this body, the bodies that you and I are now in, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It can't do something, we see. 
It cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And of course, there are lots of things your body can't do, right? When you're, some of you are really young, you have children, and there's, children are constantly looking forward to the time when they can do things. When I am big enough to ride that ride. When I'm old enough to be able to do this. When I'm big enough to be able to, to, to go out there and play with the bigger kids. I can't wait to do that. Some of us have gotten beyond that age. Now that we're older and we're wishing we could go back in time. Next month, I turn 40 years old. I'm feeling it already. I wake up and my, my neck and my shoulder are sore for no reason. Things, things now are popping that weren't popping before. I, it's breaking down. I'm no longer as fast as I once was. Not that I was ever very fast. We're used to the fact that our bodies can't do things. But Paul wants us to be clear that there is something that we can't do in this physical body that far exceeds all those other things that we can't do. And that's that we can't inherit. That is, we can't enter into the kingdom of God. Here he is talking, this kingdom of God is a a massive idea traced from beginning to end of the scripture, but we can summarize it up. In the saving rule of God, we cannot enter into the presence of God and live under his saving, glad rule. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does it, and I would argue a better translation than does it would be, nor can it, nor can corruption or what is perishable inherit what is in, inherit incorruption or imperishable. Many of you have had teachers in your life, English teachers, or you have a spouse, or you have a friend. You're sitting there and you might ask them, hey, can I do this thing? And they look at you and they say, I don't know, can you? Isn't that the most annoying response ever? I give that to my boys all the time, they hate that. And there's that that eye roll, oh, would you let me do this? Oh, well, yes, I can do that. We know the difference between can and will, and here it's can't. We can't. It is physically impossible for us in these mortal, perishable bodies to enter and to inherit all that God has in store. To inherit and to enter into the presence of God. Why? Because what is weak and broken and temporary can't enter into and be a part of what is perfect, what is eternal. For the moment that something enters into it that is expired or expiring, it ceases to be perfect. But there is something else here. There's another reason why our physical bodies can't inherit the kingdom of God, and that's because not only are they unfit, but we are unable to be there. We are unable to receive and to experience the good things that God has in store for us 
in these physical bodies. We cannot fully appreciate and enjoy all that God has in heaven if we are in these bodies. Paul will describe in Romans 8.18, as he does many other places, but he, he writes this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and I want you to imagine, Paul himself has endured enormous sufferings on a scale that you and I shudder to even imagine. And yet we can think of the suffering that exists in our world, the injustice, the wrong. And Paul is able to say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want you to imagine how great would the glory have to be for you to not even, for you to not even find it worth talking about or thinking about or, or remembering what you have experienced. How fantastic would that have to be? That's what Paul is describing the presence of God to be like. We are not capable in our physical selves of enjoying everything that God has in store for us. Just as the body of a boy of 10 years isn't strong enough and capable enough to to be able to go out on the, the athletic field and compete with those who are older... So you and I are not capable, we are not physically capable of enjoying and enduring the full enjoyment and gladness that God has in store for us. Part of the reason Christ rose from the dead to secure our resurrection from the dead with him one day is so that our gladness will increase. So that we will be able to taste fully and appreciate fully to the max all the joy that God has in store for us. He did not come to merely offer us a a better way to live, a way that is more duty-bound, but one that offers greater joys and satisfaction. Christ came to secure your eternal happiness in him, for there is nothing more glorious or offers more gladness than him. What God has in store for his people, all the eternal joys and pleasures and countless streams of happiness, all that is too much for you to taste now. We are children, right? And parents want to give their small children something good to eat, but the kid's like, no, 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 I I don't want that. Give me this instead. Don't you understand this is, this is good, really good food? Oh, oh, no, no, just give me this. Our, our taste buds haven't matured yet to be able to appreciate it. So the resurrection of Christ guarantees our salvation and our future resurrection and transformation with Christ so that we may taste of those joys. And not only so we may taste of them, but we may enjoy them. This is why Paul says in verse 3, for this perishable body, perishable body must put on imperishability. And this mortal body must put on immortality. There's that must there. We have to have this because if we don't, then what God has in store for us, we won't be able to enjoy it to the full. This is why Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. 
He came not to... He tells us that he, He came to give us joy and that our joy may be full. And Christ's resurrection secures our transformation, our future transformation, so that we can taste that joy. This is why the resurrection for you and I is absolutely essential. Well, part of the reason. We see that it is indeed certain. We see this in verse, verses 51 and 52. Paul wants to be clear. He's, gonna, he's hit on this theme again and again throughout this chapter, and he hits it again here. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And by mystery, he doesn't mean something that has never been known, but he says something that was not clearly fully understood before, but now is being revealed fully and certainly. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all stay dead but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. You notice all the, the wills and the shalls, those, those future wills, so to speak. Is This will happen. This, is, this shall be. This is a certain transformation. You shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That is, all who put their hope in Jesus, all who cling to him alone, we shall be changed, transformed, so that we may be with him. Not all will die, but every last person who has trusted in Christ will be transformed. And he gives us the how and the when. It'll be in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, as, as, as quick as is humanly possible in our imagination to consider the last trumpet, this, this idea that has been used throughout the scriptures to signal a, a massive work of God. We find this echoed in First Thessalonians as well as other passages. What is clear is that this transformation, this transformation doesn't take weeks or months or days. This is not, okay, I have got a, an app that I'm going to sell you, and if you will follow the plan on the app on your phone, you're going to see a physical transformation by next year. All right, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Come to the gym four times a day, and you, you're going to see a different you. That, that's not this. This is a, a far better plan than that. We will be made new. We will be completely and utterly transformed at the coming of Christ. And then Paul, just reveling in this truth, in verses 54 to 57, he revels in the triumph of the resurrection. Even though he is talking about the resurrection of Christ in the past, he's so certain that it's not, that it, that it not only has, that it has happened, but that it has secured our resurrection, that he is triumphing in his future resurrection for himself and for all believers. He's triumphing in it in the present day. And he invites you and I to rejoice, to revel, to party in, this, in, in our mind, in this idea, to, to live in light of this. And so he writes... So, and the, 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 the chapter is, is heading uphill. It's climaxing in this way. It is ascending in, in passion. So when this corruptible body has put on incorruption, and when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And here he's going to quote two different 
Old Testament passages, one from Hosea, the other one from the book of Isaiah, but he's bringing them together to, to revel in this truth. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O hell, O grave, O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, he is triumphant in this. It is celebratory, exultant. You know, you and I, we will still face death in this life if the Lord tarries. But Christ is one. It's, it's the picture of, a good comparison would be if you are watching a game and one team has so, so blown the other team out that by the halfway through the third quarter and fourth quarter, it's, it's a meaningless game. You just turn it off. It's not even worth watching. The game, you say, is what? It's over, Right? This past January, February, when Georgia Bulldogs beat TCU, the final score was something like 65 to 7. That's a blowout. At some point, you're just like, wow, why, why am I even, if you're going to the game, why did you even go, right? It's not, even a, it's not even fun anymore, except unless you're a George Bulldogs fan, and then it's, then it's fun. And then it's triumphant. And the whole team starts celebrating. You can watch on the sidelines of, of these times. Everyone's just excited. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. We're just waiting for the clock to hit all zeros, and then we're going to flood. But we've been celebrating this whole time. That's what Paul's doing. The clock hasn't hit zero yet. Death, Christ has not returned. Death is still happening. But guess what? Game's already over. The deciding score has already happened. It's already done. And so we read these words and we, we, you can't read them merely with dignity or, 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 but, or um, d- dignified or grave-like or statesman-like. It's, it's triumphant. It is, it is almost mocking. Here, Paul is addressing death itself. Death, that which has taken and robbed so many of life. That which has cut those in their prime down. That which haunts our waking dreams. Death, is there anything more evil than this? And Paul addresses this evil being, as it were, addresses death itself. And he doesn't do so respectfully. He does so mockingly, sarcastically. You could almost read it like, where's your victory, death? Did you think you won? Where did you go? Is this your trophy? No, this isn't your trophy. You didn't win it. He is absolutely laying it low. He is mocking it sarcastically. He is owning the moment. And it is not just death. It's the very enemies of death. We see this in verse 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin. And Christ having Paid for sin has defeated that which has brought about death. And more than that, Christ, in obeying the law, he has fulfilled it. 
And so we could say, he can say, the strength of sin is the law. And it's not that the law causes sin, but rather the law has defined what sin is, what is good and righteous and what is wrong. Paul will say elsewhere that the law is good and holy, but the shortcoming of the law is that it doesn't help you do what's right. The shortcoming of the law is that in telling you what's good and right, it tells you where you fall short. And whether you are the kind of person who is wired more towards outward conformity and goodness and, and, and religiosity, the law might present to you and you can follow it, measure up in some way, and you might be tempted towards self-righteousness. And others who find your heart just wired, any, anytime you're told this is what you must do, your heart immediately responds to the negative. I don't want to do that thing. The law defines that as sin. Neither way, the law condemns us. And Paul says the resurrection of Christ and defeating sin and defeating the law, it empties death of its power. And in his resurrection, Jesus triumphs over death, sin, and the law, and it helps us to see what sin is. And so Paul triumphantly mocks the powerlessness of death, and he invites us, every last one of us, to join him in this glad triumph. Absolutely, death brings grief. But for the Christian It brings the promise of that which is far, far better. An overwhelming sense of confidence and joy, knowing that death has died, Christ has won, as we sang earlier. There are some poems that have picked up on this theme of triumph and addressing death in a certain way. One is in your worship guide. You can find it there towards the back John Donne is a famous poet, lived in the 16th and early 17th century, wrote numerous poems. He is a a wonderful poet, often wrote on Christian themes, and he addresses death in one of his poems. O death, be not proud, though some have called thee so. And he addresses death like Paul does, but he addresses it almost in a statesman-like manner. O death, be not proud, though some have called thee so. Someone who lived not too long after him, Henry Vaughan, read much of John Donne's poetry, was moved by it. And you can tell if you start comparing Henry Vaughan's poems to John Donne's that Henry was not lifting, but he was being inspired by the poetry of his mentor, of John Donne. And Henry Vaughan writes his own poem addressing death. But unlike Dunn, who, who writes in such a way that is dignified and, and full of gravitas and statesmanlike, Henry Vaughan, the 17th century poet, he writes in a way that is almost disrespectful. The picture I get when I'm reading this poem is of a man who is, who's got someone who is trying to break into his home and he takes the gun and he walks out and he escorts the guy off his property. It's disrespectful. It's, it's the kind of attitude, get out of here. This is not your property any longer. Listen to how he 
addresses death. Death and darkness get you packing. Nothing now to man is lacking. All your triumphs now are ended. And what Adam marred is mended. Graves are beds now for the weary. Death a nap to wake more merry. Youth now, full of pious duty, seeks in thee death for perfect beauty. The weak and aged, tired with length of days, from thee look for new strength. And infants with thy pangs contest, as pleasant as with the breast. Then unto him, that is referring to Christ, unto him who hath thus thrown, even to contempt, thy kingdom down. uh, And by his blood did us advance unto his own inheritance. To him be glory, power, and praise from this unto the last of days. Death and darkness Get you packing. Isn't that just a great line? Nothing now to man is lacking. So what does this mean for us? Paul summarizes one aspect of what this means for us. If you have trusted in Christ, what this means for you. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This has special significance for Christians. Despite all their issues and problems, and the church at Corinth, if you do not know, the church at Corinth that Paul is addressing here had massive problems. I mean, he spends most of his letter to them addressing all of these massive issues in the church. And yet he calls them at the very end, my beloved brothers and sisters. But more than just addressing or having significance for Christians, it, it, it touches and has implications for everyone. Friend, some of you this morning are not Christians. You may think of yourself as a Christian You may attend church somewhere. You may read the Bible on occasion. You may believe God. You may believe in Jesus. And all that is well and good. James, in his little book, tells us that even the demons believe all these things. Judas believed all these things. And he was not a Christian. A Christian is one who has turned from his own way and is turning and following after Jesus, has trusted in Christ alone as his Savior. My friend, you can be sure that the resurrection will will affect you as it will all of us. Just as Christ has been raised from the dead, so the scriptures promise us that there will be a resurrection for each and every one of us. First, for those to glory, but there is a resurrection also to judgment. Over and over again, the Bible, God promises justice. That's what you and I want. That's what our world longs for, talks about so often. We desire justice, righteousness. God is going to give it. And that ought not to comfort you so much as terrify you. Because, friend, all of us deserve his justice. All of us deserve his wrath, his anger. For we have sinned against him who is high and holy and good. And the sign 
And yet God in his mercy, God in his mercy, despite the fact that you and I have offended him and sinned against him, God in his mercy has done what you and I could not do. He has come in Christ. And God has died. Christ, the Son of God, died in the place of sinners. Bearing the judgment of God for sinners like you and I. Will you not trust him this morning? Will you not follow him? But again, Paul is addressing Christians and he addresses Christians in two ways. He says, be steadfast, immovable. These two words combine to picture and to call from us an attitude that, that we are not to be shaken by anything. It's similar to what Paul will write in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, telling them there and us to not shift in any way from the hope of the gospel which we have heard and believed. You know, Paul knows that there are forces in the world beyond our control. There are forces in the world that would pressure us to slowly abandon the gospel, slowly abandon the truth. He knows, even in his day, that what was taught in the church that what was believed in by Christians, it was unpopular. We especially need this reminder in our day that the world feels more fractured and divided than it has ever felt in a long time. And to make matters worse, it seems like every side feels like they're losing. Like we are one step shy of losing everything. Losing our families, losing our schools, losing our kids, losing our country, losing the world. Everything seems to be at stake in every moment. And as a response, we are more anxious, more frustrated, more easily angered than we have been previously. But for Christians, the resurrection assures us that we have not lost. More than this, it assures you, friend, that you cannot lose Because Christ has not lost. If we have trusted in Christ, we will share in his triumph. And so we don't approach the fights and the battles of this world as if everything hangs in the balance upon what we do or what someone else does or how the vote turns out. It doesn't depend on those things. Not that they are inconsequential, but it doesn't ultimately depend on that. Christ has already risen from the grave. He has already won. And justice is is assured. So do not allow the winds of the world to sweep away your connection to Christ. Be steadfast, immovable in your confidence in him. More than this, he encourages us, calls us, tells us to Always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. On one level, he's two kinds of works that he may have in mind. The first might be just that general things that we are to be doing as Christians, to caring for one another, to serving one another, to to be living our lives in such a way that honors Christ with our speech, with our actions, with our thoughts. But more than that, it appears that he is speaking primarily about our work related to the service of Christ and of the gospel. It takes in every kind of sacrificial service that we are to 
always be abounding in the work of the Lord. And we need this reminder, don't we? Because if you've been serving any length of time, it can feel at some point like, why, am I, why do I keep trying? Why do I keep going? This is hard. It's hard if you, if you are a Sunday school teacher, you're teaching kids or adults. Week after week after week, you spend with the kids, you spend trying to teach them God's word, and it can feel like, what's the point? They're barely listening. It can feel like you're not getting through. And so you no longer give yourself to preparing. You no longer do what you're called. You no longer, in another instance, what's the purpose of, of gathering with God's people? What's the purpose of giving? What's the purpose of loving and caring and sacrificing for someone else? What's the purpose? And here, Paul reminds us that even, that we are to continue to always be abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that it is not in vain because Christ is risen from the dead. We can be sure because Christ is risen from the dead that even a cup of cold water given to another believer believer in the name of Christ will be recognized and rewarded by him. Nothing you do in the name of Christ is done in vain. And that is secured because Christ rose from the dead. Friend, there is this old saying, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. That's essentially what Paul's getting at here. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that nothing done for Christ will turn up empty. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we are so often captivated by the things around us, and we praise you for all the many joys that you provide. You are the one who gives sunshine and beautiful days. You are the one who blesses us with whatever food we may eat, whatever comfort we may enjoy, whatever friendship and family love that we may experience. You are the giver of every good gift. But you intend, O God, to give us better gifts than even these. And you have secured all of the joy that you intend to give us by giving your own Son So, Father, I pray that today and in the future you will strengthen us, you will help us to enjoy all that you have given us to your glory. That we will enjoy you in all that you have given us. And, Father, we pray that you would remind us, strengthen us to rejoice We rejoice in the certain future that you have secured for us through the death and resurrection of Christ our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.